Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. I'm slowly getting these episodes posted on YouTube, so please do me a big solid and subscribe to the channel. That would help a lot, and if you haven't rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, please do so. It would mean a lot to me, and it will help others find the show. Also, please share the show with a friend or acquaintance that you think would be interested because today many Christians are curious about the topic of psychedelics, but understandably shy about discussing it. And if you would like to contact me, just send me an email. That address is contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. Today we are joined by psychedelic integration coach and host of the Multifaceted Masculinity Podcast, Josh Searbaugh. Enjoy. Today we welcome Josh Searbaugh to the podcast. Josh is a former United States Marine, host of the Multifaceted Masculinity Podcast, and a psychedelic integration coach, focusing on teaching men to integrate their psychedelic experiences to maximize their lives, careers, and relationships. Josh Searbaugh, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Clint. I really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation around this topic. Well, I'm finally glad to meet you. I've been interested in a lot of your work and I've enjoyed your podcast over the last year or so when I discovered it. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say about psychedelics and about spirituality today. It's been quite the journey, so I'm excited to share it. Well, let's just begin by allowing you to tell us about your early life and some of your formative spiritual experiences, or maybe your the relational con- the religious context yeah. in which you were raised in. What kind of religious atmosphere did you grow up in, and how did that impact the trajectory of your life? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, so a Midwest Midwest boy in the eighties is where I was at, and so. Uh, but within that, uh, it was a very religious home, traditional Baptist, so Midwest traditional Baptist upbringing. I remember I, you know, we were only allowed to listen to the Christian radio station. Um, my mom grew up on a farm in Illinois, and my dad grew up in a similar kind of environment. And, you know, just about as traditional as you could picture, that was the environment that I grew up in. Things got a little bit interesting in my teenage years, just from a deeper kind of emotional standpoint. My mom and dad weren't at a good place, and I was having a hard relationship with my dad at the time and did the whole rebelling teenager thing and was really kind of at odds with my Christianity and didn't have the words to articulate it, but you know, was just in a lot of pain, essentially. And really, the, the home that I grew up in you know, it was very performative based and, you know, what that looks like in a traditional Christian home of being, if you're doing good, then praise is heaped on you and love is heaped on you. But if you're either challenging things or you are having a hard time, then it's either shut down or love is withdrawn or disciplines applied to kind of get you back in line. And my personality does not 
bode well with that kind of a structure. I'm a bit of a maverick and like to challenge things and ask questions. And, and that was even, you know, in my childhood, as far as my spirituality was concerned. But there was, there was a time probably around 13 or 14 that my dad was going through a, a process in his spirituality that he began to hear the voice of God or what he felt was the voice of God and ended up getting kicked out of the church that we were going to because they said he was going crazy. And so then that landed us in kind of like this exploratory place as far as visiting non-denominational and, and just kind of expanding out. And one vivid memory I have is we went to this, this one church just visiting and it was a Pentecostal church. And, you know, they, they asked if anybody wanted to go up for prayer and we were visiting. So we were the family that snuck in the back row and just kind of observed. And I was like, well, I'm going to go. And so I went up and somebody prayed for me and I ended up falling down and feeling God's presence. And that, I would say that probably was the beginning of marking a journey of curiosity in spirituality that I didn't really come full circle into until, you know, my twenties, because I was still, you know, like I said, in a lot of pain and really quite frankly, wanted nothing to do with God, but that was more, more than anything. That was a reflection of the pain I had with my dad, my earthly father, and I wanted nothing to do with him. And, you know, I know that it's no secret. We often project our fatherhood image onto our relationship with God until we learn something different. And so that's what led me to joining the Marines. And in my teenage years and, and even into the Marine Corps, I still wanted nothing to do with God or spirituality or anything like that. And when I got out of the Marines, a very long story short is a few weeks later, this girl I had a crush on, we went out to dinner and uh, she said to me, you know, Josh, why are you running from God? And here I was fresh out of the Marines. I was a martial arts instructor in the Marine Corps, like running. I don't run from anybody or anything, you know, type total ego response internally. But uh, I, I went home and I was actually renting a room from a guy that was dealing drugs from an old friend. And I remember getting on the floor next to my bed and basically said, you know, God, if, if you're real, not the Sunday school Christian God that I grew up with, but if you're real... I don't want to run from you. And that same kind of presence that I felt years ago when I went up to get prayer fell in that room or came in that moment. And I just started weeping and crying, which for me was like this foreign thing. An even longer story sh short with a whole lot of things transpired, but I found myself in Africa six months later with uh, uh, Iris Ministries with Heidi and Roland Baker and ended up being there for a year just pursuing really just kind of this presence that I had felt just a couple touch points and really immersing myself in what that presence could do for me and, and just the journey within that. And I learned a lot, you know, from, from all of that, it ultimately landed me out in California and in Africa is where I met my now ex-wife at the time, or, you know, at the time we were not wanting to date, et cetera. And it's the typical meet on the missions field hear God's voice for each other, then come back to the States and date for a while and get married thing. So I'm getting a little ahead of in my story, but as far as the foundational years, it was, it was really, I, I understood the Bible stories and, you know, kind of the, the foundation, but I always had this longing to have experience and let experience guide 
my relationship over just a head knowledge understanding of things. And I think that applies to a lot of things, which ultimately led me into the path of psychedelics. But from those formative years, that's kind of the background that I grew up in. Let's dig into that a little bit. In your teenage years, with that pain and that angst that you felt, do you think that was just the typical teenage existential angst? I know when I was, oh man, anywhere between 13 and 18, there was yeah. just this feeling of impending doom almost. <laughs> you know, sure, like, sure. Are you, you going to show up to school and get bullied today? Are you going to fail a test and then have to, your parents are going to see your report card that you've been trying to hide the grades for weeks on end? Yeah. Um, you know, back then, you know, parents couldn't just log on online and see your grades. You know, they only became knowledgeable about that every maybe eight weeks or so. Yeah. And so for me, there was always this impending doom that uh, the hammer was going to come down whenever my yeah. parents saw my grades and then the real teenage relationships play a huge role in that. Do you, was that just kind of like the source of your pain and anxiety or was there um, something deeper? I think there was something deeper. I, I mean, it was totally, you know, my hormones are raging, I'm chasing girls and I, my mind's not fully developed. And so I think I'm invincible and wanting acceptance from my peer group. And all of that was at play a hundred percent. Right. Um, but I, I, when I, when I say the pain associated with my dad, it was more so you know, he was kind of a there, but not their dad, meaning you know, he's lived with depression most of his life. And most of my memories are him sitting on the couch, watching TV. And, you know, just as, I didn't have the words for it or understand it, but as a boy growing up, like I, I wanted that connection. I wanted that dialogue and, you know, context for him, his, my grandpa, who I, he passed away when I was only four. So I never really knew him. I just heard stories, but later on in life, talking with my dad, come to find out he never in his entire life heard my grandpa say, I love you to him. He just was non-emotional, non-expressive. He was a plumber. You know, just kind of like if you picture that he was a drill instructor in the army during Vietnam, you know, that that image of that hardened man, that was my grandpa. And so my, that caused its own issues emotionally with my dad. And he didn't know how to connect. You know, he didn't know how to have those conversations. And and so, you know, when I'm saying that that pain was a driver, it was all the teenage stuff, a hundred percent. But as I've gotten healing and as I've begun to understand kind of what drives men subconsciously and how your past plays such an important role in that, whether it be your inner child work or connecting to your heart and understanding what's going on there, et cetera. It, it was more so me saying things like, I hate my dad, really saying I'm in a lot of pain and don't know how to express that except for this anger or this hatred, or, you know, I, again, me being kind of that mavericky pushback against things type, I, I've got three brothers and I watched my dad rough up my older brother and I was the one that would push back and fight back and say, you don't get to do this to me or to my little brothers or, you know, those kinds of things. And so with my dad kind of having that dynamic at play, my mom was working two, sometimes three jobs. And so she wasn't really around because she was doing all she could to provide because my dad normally didn't carry a job for very long and was often unemployed. So there, there was this really unhealthy dynamic of religion and control, but then also just kind of lack of oversight and guidance. 
Mm-hmm. And so I felt lost. I felt scared. I felt confused, but I, I couldn't use those words or have those conversations with my dad. So that pain expressed itself in quote unquote rebellion. You know, I was the stereotypical black sheep, right? Like I, I led my brothers astray type things. So yeah, all too common in our generation, I think. Yeah. You know, and it takes, it takes years of living and sometimes becoming a parent yourself before you can recognize the type of pain and trauma that your own parents were dealing with. Yeah. Like, you know, as, as a young person, you're just kind of always um, angry or disappointed in them because they're not showing up for you. But once you, once you start investigating your own trauma and your own ego, you recognize that your parents weren't superheroes. Yeah. They were just human beings. And they were, they were suffering with their own demons. I have no doubt your, your dad wanted to be the man that you wanted him to be, but that wasn't in there. He was fighting his own battles, I'm sure. I think that generational trauma gets handed down like that because we just don't have the tools to address our own pain, our own shortcomings, and our own broken relationship with God. Yeah. And so we hand down that tradition, unfortunately, to those who come after us. It's true. Uh, You know, unless we're willing to be the men who choose to draw a hard line in the sand and quote unquote, do the work right? Lean into right. that, that shadow work or the trauma or the generational things. And I mean, I know that we're going to get into it in more detail, but that's one of the things that I love about plant medicine is it is, it's not the only by any means, but it is definitely what I have found in my own journey to be one of the most disruptive in a beautiful way of internal dialogue or that trauma or whatever it may be, it almost short circuits your, your default, like run to escape internal mechanisms and broadens your horizon of even just seeing that there's something different. And then that's, you know, that's why my passion is working with men on, on the integration of like, when you experience those things, then how do you actually walk out change in a way that has a direct ripple effect into your kids and into the generations to come? Yeah. Positive impact, not only on your life, but on the generations to come. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. So you spent some time in the Marine Corps. Did yep. you, did, did the, for the Marine Corps for you, was that kind of a way out of middle of America? Like I'm going to go out and see the world. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. I'm going to represent the yep. country. I'm entering the military. How did you feel about that? Also in the midst of all that, how did you end up being a martial arts instructor? Um, all good questions. I'll try to keep the answer relatively short because there's a lot within all of that and that journey and that process. But, you know, I I think that kids thrive in a healthy structure and I didn't have that. And so, you know, I found that in the military and I think that was one of the draws and the appeals that I had as to why I wanted to join the Marines in the first place, like I, I got involved with, it was kind of, uh, it was separate from school, but kind of an ROTC program called young Marines about a year before I graduated. And there was this old guy named Dick Scott. He was a Vietnam vet and he just kind of took me under his wings and taught me how to drive a stick shift and did road trips and, and kind of became that father figure that I was looking for. And and so I think finding that as well as the structure that it afforded was just a really big appeal. Um, and then, you know, me being me and my stubbornness, 
I, I walked into the Navy recruiting office and said, what's the hardest branch to get into? And they said the Marines. So I just turned around like a cocky prick and, and walked over to the Marines is like, I want to sign up. And I, I think it was, you know, I, I felt like I had something to prove to myself, which also led into the whole martial arts instructor side of things. You know, it was just a, a further extension of the desire to prove something to myself and to others as well. Um, but I, I, I vividly remember when I joined the Marines, I always call it God's sense of humor because I joined in 2000 and was in from 2000, 2004. So 9-11, initial push in Iraq, Afghanistan. And I remember when I joined, I said I wanted the reasons I wanted to join were I wanted to get away from my family. I wanted to travel the world and I wanted to legally kill people. I got, that was the headspace that I was in, not having the slightest clue as to what that actually meant, you know, the, the reality of that. And I actually was part of a non-deployable command. So a command that stays within the United States when 9-11 happened and they do what's called a stop loss, stop move, which basically during a time of war, they freeze everybody in their units and then just train and fill the units that are actually in the front lines. And I remember being so pissed because, you know, I, that meant that I couldn't go to war. And um, so I felt like frustrated and I felt let down. And, you know, I had friends that had newborn kids that were leaving and weren't with their family. And, you know, I, I wanted to kill people. And so then getting out and finding myself in Africa six months later, it was kind of like, okay, I joined for all of these wrong reasons, you know, maybe good intention or just whatever the reasons were. But then I found myself actually traveling the world uh, outside of the Marine Corps instead of inside the Marine Corps. And it was while I was in was when I really, I wouldn't say that I was homesick, but I had a greater, greater appreciation for my family. And so that was kind of exposed as well. And uh, I originally joined as a motor T driver. So driving Hummers, five tons, that kind of stuff. And then about a year and a half in the Marine Corps came out with a new martial arts program called McMaps Marine Corps martial arts program. And they were looking for volunteers to sign up to go through the instructor training. And I was non-deployable, still had something to prove, you know, still had the chip on my shoulder I was 19. And so I said, sign me up. You know, which basically all that meant was I learned I can get knocked out and wake up like, you know, like we we trained pretty intensely, but everybody's so that's a valuable skill to have. So <laughs> normal reaction, you know, is like, oh, I'm not going to mess with you. And and, uh, you know, I've I feel like I've matured to the point where I, I don't consciously think of those tools as as like the go to. There's a thousand other things before you arrive at that place, you know. So that, you know, it was more so to, to prove something to myself and to continue to challenge myself. And, and then it was, you know, again, me being in the headspace I was in, it felt like a good opportunity for violence and because I, I couldn't deploy into war the closest I could get would just be to immerse myself in fighting. I appreciate your transparency and your vulnerability in explaining your emotional motivations and, and all that. What led you to Africa? How'd you end up there? Well, I, you know, got on the ground and felt God's presence and was crying, etc. 
this same girl said, Hey, you might be interested in this little church. And it was maybe 50 people. And so I, I decided to go and check it out. And I walk in, I remember walking in and the first Sunday service was, I mean, it was not your traditional church by any means. Um, I walk in and in worship, they have somebody go up to the microphone and give a public tongue and then a public interpretation. And then there's a lady in the back corner flailing and they're doing a deliverance ministry with her kicking out a demon or whatever's going on over there. And I just remember, again, traditional Baptists, you know, like none of that was in my realm of comfort or understanding, but I felt that same presence that I felt in the bedroom. And, and so I just said this, you know, this feels weird as hell. I'm way outside my comfort zone, but I'm going to keep going because I I'm, I'm just kind of following this presence that I, that has been guiding me to that point. And so I, you know, it was, I had to learn everything in the sense of the realm of the spirituality side of it. And there was a guy there that we went to the, the one thing conference. So it's the new year, they fast and pray and gather and like usher in the new year. And so we went to that conference and this guy turned to me and he said, I have a prophetic word for you. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. What's a prophetic word. I mean, I was just, that's the place I was in, you know, and so he gave me like a brief rundown of what it was and said, you know, I see you, uh, I see a picture of you in Africa playing with kids. And when he said it, I internally just kind of rolled my eyes because I'm like, well, one, I don't play with kids. Like, I'm, I'm not a kid guy at the time I am now, but so that's not going to happen. And Africa, I mean, that would be cool. Sure. I, I enjoy traveling and experiencing other cultures, but it just, you know, it didn't resonate. And so then over the next couple of weeks, I just kind of like bookmarked it. And um, over the next couple of weeks, all of a sudden Africa started popping up everywhere. Meaning like I'd be standing in line at Starbucks and the people in front of me were talking about how they just got back from a missions trip in Africa. And I mean, just, uh, there was several of those kinds of things that, that transpired that all of a sudden I'm going, what in the world is going on you know, here? I, I just, I'm slow to get the two by four that's hitting me in the face type thing. And, uh, and then my aunt had sent me an email and said, Hey, you may want to check out this website. It was elijahlist.com. And when I went to it, they were Iris ministries was had an ad promoting their, it was, it was actually the very first mission school that they had ever put on. They've done several since, but uh, I clicked on it and I was reading it and kind of like scanning through the breakdown and, you know, it's going to be challenging and little to no electricity and you have to dig your own latrines and, you know, they're, they're trying to paint this picture to not deter people, but like give a realistic expectation of what they're getting into. And I remember reading it. I was at my mom's house and, and I just, as I was reading it, I felt that same kind of a presence thing. And I just yelled, mom, I'm going to Africa. And she, she's like, uh, excuse me, you know, what? And, uh, and so I filled out the application and little did I know that there was a, a big draw to their ministry and a lot of people were applying and, you know, um, 
And I remember, you know, the application process, like I was so naive at the time, but I just knew that I was going. And one of the questions on the application was what Bible character do you most represent or do you feel you most re represent and why? And I said, Joshua, because that's my name. And he was in the military and so was I. And the super sweet gal named Susie Tolley, she was the person who vetted all the applications and Apparently she read my application, which I was just straightforward, like, you know, Hey, rebelled Marines, I'm on this journey, whatever. And she told me later, like when she was reading my application, she just started weeping because her heart, um, she's from Germany and her heart was really to see the hardest, her, her phrase is the hardest of hearts turned to God. And so when she read my application, I guess the school was already full, but she made an exception, replied back to me said, you know, we would love to have you. And so then I'm like, all right, I'm going to figure this out. And whatever it was, three weeks later, I landed in Mozambique, Africa. Do you have any clue what your duties were going to be once you got there? Not even the slightest, <laughs> not even the slightest. I just showed up and uh, I mean, I remember, you know, they were bringing in all these speakers that were very well known within the charismatic movement. And um, most of the people were like, can you believe that you know, Stacey Campbell's coming or Bill Johnson's coming or whomever is coming. And cause it was the first school. So they had brought out all these people for it. And I didn't know a single person and didn't know what to expect with any one of them. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of like along for the ride and so filled whatever void needed to be filled. And so ended up being, you know, just with my experience and my passion and who I am and how I'm wired, I went to the first school and then came back and actually helped staff the second and third schools. And so there was just a small team of, you know, less than a dozen of us that were, that were coming back to kind of help facilitate the growth. And then my experience in the Marine Corps helped bring a little bit of structure to it, it as much as you can in Africa in a chaotic spirit filled environment. But what kind of time commitment was that, that first journey, what kind of time commitment were you making? It was three and a half months. Okay. okay. Yeah. So a nice little stint. Right. Right. What were your, I mean, at, before you committed to that, what was going on in your life in the States? Did you have a career, a job at that point where you, I mean, you're post-military. Yeah. I assume you may be just trying to find out where you fit in and find yeah. your place in society. That a hundred percent. That's where I was. I was actually doing maintenance for an apartment complex, you know, fixing, fixing issues mm -hmm. and um, doing landscaping and changing light switches, fire alarms yeah, and yeah, yeah, like just all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And I had chosen to not renew my contract in the Marines. I knew I didn't want to do it as a career and sc the school environment slash college. Like that's just not me. Never has been. I love learning, but I have a hard time within the, the structure of the traditional education system. And, and so it was kind of like, well, what am I going to do with my life? I don't know. And I just had a job. And like I said, I was renting this room and, and then the series of events happened that landed me in Africa. And then I, you know, that's where I met my ex-wife and then she was from Florida. And then I got back from Africa and a month later moved to Florida to date her. And well, tell us a little bit years, about, and, you know, about Africa. Like you, so you were there for another couple of classes. So it went almost yeah. a year, probably. Yeah. Yeah. It was about a year in total. Can you briefly give us some 
something that made an impact? I mean, I've never been to Africa. I'd love to go. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were and what the atmosphere was like? And yeah, so I was in that made on you. I was in Pemba, Mozambique, which is the northern part of Mozambique and the in Mozambique's the eastern side of Africa, just above South Africa. And gosh, impactful. It it I was very much following experience, you know, like I'd said, and very much not knowing what the heck I was doing. And so I, you know, I did all these kinds of crazy things that were people were prophesying and, you know, doing all these different things. And so like one example was I said, you know what, I want to learn how to hear God's voice for my own life. So my solution to that was I'm not going to speak for a week. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to learn how to listen to people, to God, to this internal leading, all of that. And so, you know, I had a little notepad that I would write things down on or whatever it may be. And, um, and that was actually part of my story with, with my ex, as far as she had felt like she'd heard from God that I was, I was to be her husband. And there was a whole series of events. And so I was in this week of speech fast, as I called it, to learn how to hear God's voice. Um, you know, I didn't take an online course or anything. It was just, well, I'm just going to try this. And uh, that couldn't hurt for sure. <laughs> if we all did um, that occasionally. For, yeah, it may not be a bad thing. But uh, we, we were sitting next to each other and I saw this picture of us just standing at the altar together. And of course, me being me, I'm like, oh, I'm not speaking. I'm trying to hear God's voice for my own life. Of course, they're, the devil's going to come with this distraction that is going to try to throw me off. And, you know, so I didn't know that the night before she was praying and, and said, like, God, you need to give him a vision if this is actually you. And I'm being naive. And so I, I write down on my little notepad, hey, I need to talk to you after class. I had this weird picture of us at the altar. Can you pray for me? that, you know, this distraction would go away or something like that, you know, little did I know I was like giving her her confirmation. And, you know, so she's freaking out and, and all of that. And, and she, you know, she chose to not pray for me and I'm like frustrated and, and all of that. And, and so, you know, just this, that whole journey of like, that's one snippet within that week, but there were several little things like that, that, I would say in hindsight, looking back on it, it was just learning how to be more in tune period and choosing to put intentionality behind something specific in this case, learning how to hear God's voice. And I think that that has had a, a ripple effect in just learning how to hear my own internal voice, right? My own inner King, my own, the, the God from within that guides us that, that gut intuition, et cetera, because I was disconnected from that as well. And so that, that happened in the first school. And then when I went back to help staff, it was probably my sweet spot. If I were to say, if there was a time I felt most alive because I was in a leadership position, which I love, I love leading people and, uh, was teaching some classes, which felt me, made me feel really uncomfortable, but it was stretching me and getting me outside my comfort zone there was, like I said, all these speakers that were coming in and, and imparting their gifts and wisdom and knowledge and experience with God. And so it was just a really accelerated environment because I didn't have my day-to-day -day life, right? I, I was completely removed from that and immersed in the culture. 
well, the culture to a degree, because they, they kind of they had a compound that we stayed on. And so we weren't necessarily in the village. There were times that we did outreaches to the villages and, you know, stayed in tents that we brought and um, different things like that. And, you know, I, I remember one of our outreaches, we showed up and they brought us their fattest goat, right? And that was their gift. And I remember being just floored by, um, you know, here are these people that have next to nothing, quite literally, and they're giving us their very best. And, you know, I, I had this big crocodile Dundee knife that I wanted to bring. And so I gifted them that knife and they used it to harvest the goat. And that night we had goat stew, which basically means uh, the goat's blood, water, and all of the like intestines and meat and liver and like everything into a stew. Uh, and I vividly remember holding back gagging because it was not a pleasant experience, but <laughs> wanting to honor them, you know, and wanting right. to, to honor the sacrifice that they gave for us so generously. And so, you know, there, there were several things like that that really marked both my internal world as well as just my perspective of humanity as a whole. Right. So were you working with people of all ages or mostly children? Like what was the basic concept of the ministry? So they had an orphanage, which ties back into this whole prophetic word image of me playing with kids, which I, I, I actually loved doing, you know, as it turned out, I would dance with them a lot and, uh, you know, they loved playing soccer or football for them. And, and so we would often do that. And, it, you know, there was a couple hundred kids there. They also had a, like a, a ministry school that it, for, for people in the village outreaches, they would do if someone chose to become a pastor for that village. So they had like a hundred or so pastors or pastors in training that were also doing different things. Some of it was cross-pollinated with us. And then some of it was separate, you know, in their own dialect and Portuguese was the main language, but then they also had Makua, which was the tribal dialect there. And so, you know, they kind of structure it in a way that we had exposure and experience with them, but then also, you know, a lot of their teachings were in a language that, that would be easier for them to understand, et cetera. And, you know, I remember one time we were all together and Heidi said, stand up if you have, if someone has died while trying to get water and 80% of the pastors stood up and, you know, cause it was very common for crocodiles or, you know, hippos or just drownings or whatever it may be. And just her perspective was just, you know, like trying to shock us with the truth and the reality of what these people go through on a regular basis and how God really is their savior. You know, like it's not just a great theoretical comfort God, but it's, we need God, we need you to actually provide water and food and, and basic necessities of life. And so, you know, we had it, the structure of it was, you know, the, there was guest speakers that came in and they kind of presented whatever their gift set or anointing was. And then we also had kind of a classroom. It was, it was basically a giant circus tent that we sat under and it was kind of a classroom environment and just understanding missions and, you know, the difference between a time centric culture versus a relational centric culture and, and what that means. And so, you know, in Mozambique, if somebody shows up within an hour and a half or two hours of the time that you say you're going to meet they're on time, because on the way they met you know, Johnny and just stopped and had a conversation. So it's, it was relationally centric instead of time. 
in, in the West Coast, which drove me bonkers because I was fresh out of the Marines. 15 minutes as early as on time. And if you're on time, you're late. You know, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? But um, and then we also did some outreaches into the villages, you know, where we would go out and they had um, the a Jesus film translated into Makua and they would show that and then uh, bring people up for prayer and for, you know, the salvation prayer and all of that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it was very immersive in that sense, even though we kind of had our own compound that we lived in that had, you know, the first school, we got electricity by generator for one hour a night. And so it was still, you know, rugged, but uh, at the same time, we weren't living necessarily in the villages with them at all times. I would love to spend hours with you telling me all these Africa stories. <laughs> um, really, I would. I mean, it's uh, fascinating. What, what year was this? Maybe like 2006, 2005. 2000? Okay. okay. 2005. Yeah. Is when I started. So how do you end up back in the States and what happens then? Uh, well, like I said, after I got back, we I had this, these experiences around uh, my ex-wife. And, and so I felt like, you know, she was the one. And um, so I actually met with her parents and asked permission to date her. And they said, well, two things. One, you have to date for a minimum of a year. And two, you have to move because we believe that long distance relationships can only take you so far. And I was just at this place of like, okay, if, if that's what I got to do, that's what I got to do. Cause I know she's the one type thing. And so I moved to down to Florida and, you know, just got a job doing retail sales for T-Mobile at the time. And uh, before the iPhone came out and, um, and, you know, like the razor phones were the latest yeah. and greatest at the time. Flip phones. Yeah. yeah. The good old flip phones. And so I, you know, I worked and dated her and there was the third school that I went back to. So I worked there for a little bit and then I went back for a third school and then came back again. And then it was shortly after that third school, I guess a little bit after that, that I, you know, I asked her to marry me and she said yes. And then we ended up you know, praying together where we should start our life out and felt like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania was the place for us to go. And it was tough because she was the, the first of four kids to get married. And in her parents' eyes, I was coming into this picture and, and ripping the family apart, right? Because I was taking their little girl away from them. And so we, we ended up moving to Harrisburg and there's a church there uh, called Life Center that we got involved with. And you know, it was, it was definitely hard because neither one of our families were nearby. And, you know, my family was in Indiana, hers is in Florida, but it also, I would say was really good because it accelerated that kind of leaving and cleaving process mm -hmm. and really made us kind of figure out, you know, how are we doing this thing together? So, you know, working for T-Mobile, I was able to transfer and, and for a while I was just doing, you know, the nine to five and providing for my family and, it was when she got pregnant with our first child that that kind of re-sparked this entrepreneurial passion that I have always had. You know, I was the kid with the paper route and the lemonade stand and shoveling driveways in the winter and all that kind of stuff. And so my son's 12, almost 13 now. And when she was pregnant with him was the first time I kind of stepped out and looked at leaving my job and transitioning out of that to then start a network marketing company that I got involved in and you know, pursued that for a while. And then that led to other endeavors that, you know, there's been a handful of businesses that I've been a part of since then. 
Well, that, that definitely shows that you have a unique approach to life because the average Joe would have said, I've got a kid <laughs> on the way. I need to go get a job with the insurance and all the, you know, the bennies and all that stuff. Yeah. And you said, I think it's time to step out and do something <laughs> for myself. That, yeah. I don't know. Uh, is that rebel streak coming out of you again. Courageous or not that smart. I don't know which it is. <laughs> I, I think it's courageous. Well, so how did you end up from there? How did you end up in California? So we went ahead and moved back to Florida for a year. And again, just uh, because of how we met and the story, the spirituality involved, like that was a big part of our marriage. So we moved to Harrisburg for two years, moved back to Florida for a year. We're actually about to build a house there. And there was just a, a you know, my, my morning quiet time. All of a sudden, Redding, California popped on the radar in, in my quiet time. And I'm like, well, you know, what is this? I knew because Bill Johnson had come out to speak in Africa, like I was aware of him and we had talked about, Hey, it'd be fun to go visit there someday and that kind of stuff. And, and long story short is within a matter of two months through a similar series of events of kind of prayers and conversations and confirmations and really odd circumstances, people, you know, coming up to us saying, have you ever gone to Redding, California? I don't know what's there for you. Or, you know, those kinds of things started happening. And, you know, I was still slow to the draw, but quick enough to realize like, oh, there's this theme that seems to be happening when we're getting pushed out of something or into something new. And so we ended up moving out to Redding, California. And we, I mean, we knew a handful of people because there was a, there was a chunk of people that went kind of from, their experience in Africa directly to Redding, California, to be a part of Bethel Church that's out there. And, and so, you know, we weren't going into it totally blind, but in the sense of like starting over and building relationships and community and all of that, it was, I, I hopped in a U-Haul and drove out over a couple day period and showed up and found a, an apartment for us to move into. And then she flew out with our son, you know, whatever it was a week later and we, we started our journey there. We ended up staying there for a little over seven years then. I kind of would rather wait till later because you may, <laughs> you may have some more circumstances that involve this, but the thought keeps coming to my mind. When you entertain these voices from God or these messages, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how to properly contain that idea. And if you do, you can elaborate on it. What gives you the confidence to act or the reservation to, to turn that opportunity down or stall or say, maybe this is not the voice of God. Maybe this is just my mind playing tricks on me. I, I mean, I felt those calls myself. And so, yeah, but there's always this struggle of, is this just me excited about something or is God really calling me to something? Yeah. Do yeah. you have uh, any thoughts about how how to make sense of that? Well, I have this uh, secret sauce in the seven step book and this program you can join. No, I'm joking. Um, it, it, I think if I was able to fully unlock that, it would help Im immensely for a lot of people. But for me, I, I think there's a couple things that come to mind. I feel like it's it's morphed and changed over the years, and just where I am today 
it is much more of exploring and understanding and trusting for lack of better words, the God within. And because I had always kind of detached there's this external God who's telling me to do things versus this internal God that's a part of my life and, and guiding me into things. But what I found, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is just as a former Marine, I feel the more people I meet, the more I believe I have a different threshold of fear or uh, what holds people back. I, I don't necessarily feel that same paralyzing effect, I guess, is maybe the best way of, of saying it. And what I really began to look for and, and still do to this day is, is actually a where I lean into and where it says, you know, for me as a go and a green light is if I feel fear. So normally that's my insecurities or my old stories or my past trauma or my inner child being afraid based on old experiences, whatever it may be, whatever the source of that fear is. But if I feel fear or uncertainty, but I also feel um, an excitement and life around whatever it may be, I often find that if those two things are present, then that that's to me is my green light to move forward. And, you know, you could, you can make the argument, well, you could jump into something prematurely, right? But I, I think a lot of us are afraid of our own greatness. And a lot of us have a really well-polished way of convincing ourselves that, that wisdom, quote unquote, um, is nothing more than fear masquerading as a really good excuse to not take action. And, and so for me, whatever it may be, you know, getting into coaching or public speaking or connecting with a certain group or launching a certain business. If, if I feel that life, if I feel that excitement in normally nine times out of 10 for me, it's stepping into an unknown. Right. And so that unknown, it brings up all those, you know, insecurities and fear of failure and fear of rejection and, and all of that, all of a sudden stares me in the face but if I feel those things at the same time of feeling this life and this excitement, and normally when you start to take baby steps towards whatever it may be, momentum begets momentum and you begin to connect with other people or find courage in what you're doing and, and all of that. And, and so I think it ultimately comes down to learning how to actually leverage fear and use it as a guidepost to move you into who you're meant to be. Because normally on the other side of the veil of fear is another level for you to access. And that's ultimately what God wants for each one of us is to, you know, to access that, that unconditional love for ourselves, that un unlimited potential for who we can become as a dad, as a man, as a father figure, as, as a friend, as a lover, whatever it may be. And, and so a lot of times that's what I look for is I look for where am I scared shitless and where do I feel excitement and life? And if both of those are present and, you know, there's wisdom and counsel, I have a very tight group, uh, core group of two or three guys that I trust and have relational equity with, and they know my insecurities, they know my fears and my doubts. And so, you know, because of the relationships that I've cultivated with them. I let them speak into my life and, 
maybe I have these dynamics at play, but I'm talking to them and they're saying, well, that sounds a lot like, you know, what you said three years ago and, you know, are, are you hiding or is it not time to do this or whatever? And so I think it's a combination of learning to trust your own intuition and trust that life that's pulling you forward, God that's pulling you forward at the same time, establishing a core group of men around you that know you well enough to call you on your bullshit and to challenge you into that next level of who you can be. We can almost just end it right there. Like, <laughs> I think everybody needs to hear that, but I'm not done with you. So, okay. All right. Fair enough. How does all that lead you into a circumstance where you start investigating psychedelics or plant medicine? Yeah. Honestly, out of desperation, more than just about anything. I, it was about two, it, it was about three years ago that our marriage was at a really tough place. And, uh, ultimately through, you know, a series of challenges and hurdles, like our marriage didn't make it, unfortunately. And it was two years ago that I went through a divorce. I didn't want the divorce. I, I'm a deeply, deeply loyal person, sometimes to even to a fault and, uh, reached a point where I had become really codependent and lost a lot of my identity and my masculinity within my marriage and in an attempt to try to save it as if I could be the one to save it. And so when I found myself literally sitting in my worst fears, because it was always, I'm going to get married and grow old together with this person. And one of my greatest fears is that I won't, right? Whatever those reasons may be. And I found myself sitting in the pain of the grief of the death of our marriage and just feeling completely overwhelmed, feeling like the shell of a man, feeling like I had failed, feeling like I didn't do enough, not knowing how to connect to my inner strength anymore, feeling like a fraud because I was doing coaching at the time. And yet my marriage and my life feels like it's falling, like my marriage is falling apart. My life feels like it's falling apart. And uh, so feeling like a fraud, even within what I'm doing and really kind of hit this rock bottom internally, which led to a really deep depression, you know, and I know that feeling depressed and overwhelmed is, is kind of that stage of processing grief. But what I began to see was I was essentially becoming my dad, you know, where I felt overwhelmed by life where my victim mentality was overriding my desire to be present and move forward in life and, you know, all of that. And it was really a friend of mine that had, he's a former Marine. And I think he's actually been a guest on your podcast, Seth. He had just started his journey with plant medicine and through just talking because we met in Reading in a men's group. And so he was, he wasn't necessarily a close, close friend, but he had been with me as I was processing certain things in the men's group. And so there was enough trust there that, you know, he brought up, Hey, have you ever thought about plant medicine? And, you know, I was at a place two years ago when I had a gun to my head and I thought that the, it, it feels so far removed from where I am today, but in the moment, you know, I was propped up on a ton of VA medications and antidepressants, anti-anxiety, you know, all of this. And was basically just kind of like laying on the side of the road of life. And I thought that taking my own life and 
giving my kids my life insurance money was the best gift I could give them and basically find a way out of how I felt. You know, fortunately, I didn't take my life in that moment, but I, I chose not to. And it wasn't like I had this aha moment that all of a sudden, you know, Johnny knocked on the door and saved my life, but it was just the, one of my lowest points. And it was later that week that talking with Seth, he brought up, you know, the conversation of plant medicine. And I, you know, I was a dare kid. I grew up in the eighties. It was say no to drugs. It was psychedelics. You're, you know, you're going to lose your mind and jump off a bridge thinking you can fly. Like I, we heard all those horror stories, you know? And so I was taught to be afraid of them. But like I said, I was more desperate than I was afraid in that stance and or instance. And so it was a couple of weeks uh, later that I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to come off of my antidepressants, uh, microdosing psilocybin. And really the motivator was I wanted to sit in some ayahuasca ceremonies that were coming up in about two months. And, you know, it's, uh, you cannot be, and should not be on any kind of an SSRI if you're sitting with ayahuasca. And so I kind of had this self-imposed deadline of like, I want to be off of them fully, but it scared the Jesus out of me. Like, cause I had tried to come off of antidepressants before and every time had suicidal ideations spiraled down lower in depression, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And so, um, if you don't mind me asking when, yeah, when did you begin medication and how, I mean, how, I guess, how long had you been on medication? Was that a result of your relationship or was that prior to that? It was prior to that. So I had been on antidepressants off and on, but pretty consistently for uh, about five years leading up to that. And, you know, like I said, it, it runs in my family. My brother has pretty bad seasonal depression. My dad has depression. My older brother has depression, you know, and, and I, I think that there is some of that, that, that can totally be genetic, but I think a lot of that is, you know, in our ability to control if we choose to take action, certain things, but I understand all too well, the pit of despair that it feels, you know, that you feel. And so the smallest actions feel almost impossible at times. Um, you know, I, I remember vividly of like, okay, if I take a shower today, then I had a good day, you know, like just setting really low bars to try to crawl myself out of where I was at. And antidepressants came in the picture as really a means of saying, okay, what I'm doing on my own without them is not working. And so maybe, maybe this will help, you know, and, and the thing with the VA, which I'm grateful to them, but I went through, I think it was four or five different medications before I found, you know, the right one that, that worked for me. And each one of those takes two to three weeks that you're taking it and you're not feeling anything. And then you realize, oh, I've got these horrible side effects and then you have to taper off of them. And it was just, you know, this horrible process. And so then I found one that worked well enough for me. And then they slowly kept increasing the, the dosage. And then that led to anxiety and then anti-anxiety. And it just, I was, I was on this path of stacking meds essentially, you know, which so many veterans unfortunately find themselves in. And, um, and that was part of me feeling desperate was like, I, here I am on three times the amount recommended amount of an antidepressant. And I've got a gun to my head, you know, like I, I, it's not working. I want to end my life, you know? And, and so I put together a plan. I, with Seth and another friend, I talked to them every single day, 
you know, they reminded me in those days where I'm like, I just think I want to get back on them. This isn't worth it or whatever. Understanding that I'm like withdrawing a massive crutch that my mind has been propped up on for years. And the interesting thing was microdosing with psilocybin. Yes, I had low moments, but I didn't drop into that deep abyss. The opposite actually happened. You know, I kind of started to feel hopeful and I had better days and I felt I got started to get involved with yoga and doing hot yoga. And I still had to get out of my house to do it, but I felt capable to do it, I guess is the best way of saying it. Again, I also had this motivating drive of wanting to uh, be prepared for, for ayahuasca. And, and so, you know, sitting with ayahuasca, then that blew up all kinds of paradigms for me. And in the, in the process of all of this, like through my divorce as well, um, so much, as I've said, of, of my story kind of had with my ex-wife had God involved in it. And so in a lot of ways, she was my God. And, and so my definition of spirituality and Christianity, you know, I went through this whole deconstruction, as people say, not even I didn't want to, right? It was just everything was falling apart. My marriage was falling apart. My career was falling apart because I didn't feel like I felt like a fraud. Uh, my spirituality was falling apart because so much of my God was interwoven within my marriage and that was falling apart, you know? And so I really kind of working with plant medicine landed at a place where I just said, okay, the only thing I know is God is love. Like that's it. I, what happens if I look at spirituality from the foundation of God is love and nothing else, like no, not even Christianity, no Bible, no, nothing like just God is love. What does that look like? And doing that in conjunction with um, doing, you know, macro doses or stronger doses of psilocybin and sitting with ayahuasca. And now that's led to, you know, I've done some deep healing work with MDMA from a just emotional healing process. And it's just opened me up to all of these other things that the, the sad thing is I actually lost several really close friends that were Christians because leaning into the plant medicine space, it was, I'm talking to demons. I'm opening myself up to satanic, you know, rituals. I am going to lose my mind. I'm being a bad dad because I'm exposing my kids to a spiritual environment. That's not safe for them. Like all these things. And yet at the same time, I'm finding more love for myself and for others. I'm feeling closer to God and to the universe than I am with other. I'm actually finding myself becoming more like Jesus in the process of this. And yet, because it's outside of their comfort zone and, and their paradigm, you know, it's really their fear that's saying, Hey, you need to get back in line with what I'm comfortable with for us to maintain relationship. And again, just that desperation more than anything, I was just like, you know, I, I remember I had my closest friend at the time talking to him, getting ready for the ayahuasca ceremony. We reached a point where he, you know, challenged me and was essentially shaming me and trying to control me with his fear. And I reached a point where I just said, Hey, so-and-so, you know, if, if what you're saying, like, I want a friendship with you, I think that there are several things that we can talk about and still deeply connect with in sense of an emotional bond in, in between men and friendship. But if what you're saying is I have to choose between a friendship with you or pursuing plant medicine, I'm going to pursue plant medicine. And 
unfortunately, you know, his response was, well, I, I can't go there with you. And so, you know, in that sense, it has cost me a lot to pursue it, but it has opened up my ability to find, like I said, love for myself and for others and more, you know, like I'll microdose sometimes maybe take a higher microdose when I'm camping with my kids and just feel deeply connected to them. And I, I can access empathy and compassion for them and, and my inner child and be childlike. And like, there's all these things that actually produce a um, more fulfilling life in every sense, including my spirituality that has come from, you know, this process with plant medicine. Can you share a little bit about your first experience? Obviously you, you tapered off of the prescriptions. Yeah. And you were using low dose psilocybin to yep. assist, assist with that. And I, you know, neither of us are recommending anyone do that, but that is something that seems to offer people a little bit easier of a time you know, yeah. in coming off of their uh, prescriptions. How did that manifest in your situation? So you, you did that for a few weeks in preparation for this ayahuasca journey. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that experience and how was it transformative? Was it just something that maybe led you, like gave you a vision for what the future might be, or was it in and of itself fairly transformative? Good question. Um, for me, well, I think an interesting thing with the ayahuasca specifically was you know, I, I had done like setting up the diet and I had done coming off my SSRIs and, you know, you set intentions going into it. And so I, I had done, done a lot of the framework for it, but what I really walked away with. So I sat in the first time I sat with it, I sat with it for three nights in a row and, um, probably some of the most intense nights of my life that includes anything I've done in the Marines. And there, there was two things I think that would be maybe beneficial to highlight was the second night. Uh, I remember actually the first night I remember, you know, mother ayahuasca coming to me when I was in the middle of my experience. And she said, uh, do you, are you ready to look at your loneliness? And I remember at the time I'm laying there and I'm like, Nope, I am not because that's a monster that is the monster. You know, my loneliness is the thing that paralyzes me more than anything. And, 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 and I, I was expecting, you know, whether it be because of life experiences or the Marines or whatever it may be that she'd be like, you know, tough, we're going there anyways, let's go, you know, but just so graciously said, okay, I'm just going to hang it over here. And there's like the word loneliness and it just kind of hung up, hung it up on the side. And then the second night. I was in the midst of my experience and I remember saying like, this is all internally, but I remember saying, you know, I'm ready to look at my loneliness. And, you know, the funniest thing was like, then she came, walked over and grabbed this banner and it was like bright purple and pink and magenta is like these really bright, colorful colors. And, and, uh, and she was like, wait, this loneliness over here, or is it over here? wait, let's play a game. See if you can find your loneliness. And I just started cracking up laughing. And I, cause I'm like, no, 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 no. This, this is the demon that like chases me around in my life. I'm supposed to take this really serious and go into the depths of this, you know, dark hole of despair. And, you know, you're and, making light of it. 
yeah. and you're making light of it. You know, what the heck? And, and, and that went on for a while. And it was like this game of hide and seek, like, come on, you're supposed to find your loneliness and go into it. And, and it was all these bright colors and everything. And then, um, and then she, like the, the banner got flung. And then there was this, uh, it was like an Aztec face, I guess is the best way to describe it came when that flung out of the way, it came like right at me. It was really big. And then she said, this is who you are. And then these pillars, like these huge cement pillars started to drop. And it was like courageous, loving, kind, powerful, you know, just all these like powerful words. And, and I'm like, no, 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 but I'm supposed to work on my loneliness. Like I'm supposed to stare at that and go into that abyss and, you know, all of that. And to me, I mean, there were several takeaways within that, but it was one of the things was like, I, part of my victim mentality is I want to fixate on my loneliness. Right. And, and all that does is suck me into a darker place of loneliness. And, um, and so on the other side of the ceremony, you know, the integration aspect of it is instead of wallowing in my loneliness to sure acknowledge that it's there in my life, but to be like super practically get involved in community and put myself out there. And, you know, I'm dating this amazing gal now and be in a relationship, like do things that are not loneliness driven, but are actually life driven anchored in these, you know, like this is who you are reminders. Well, in comparison to your positive qualities, your loneliness and your failures really don't stack up. I mean, they, yeah. and, and I think that that's true for most of us, you yeah. know, but we're so fixated on the negative points in our life. We can't see out of that rut. Yeah. And I think sometimes for many people, psychedelics gives them the opportunity just to see outside of that. Yeah. And to get a slightly greater vision for what's possible in their life. Yeah. And I, I think an interesting thing. So the third night, with ayahuasca, I remember taking it and immediately going, Oh, I need to get this out of me. Like this, I, this is a bad thing. I, I should, I, I need to, like, I, I kind of started to panic and long story short, I found myself outside of the ceremony with, with someone that was sitting with me that had experience and was just there with me. And for probably an hour and a half, I sob cried and I just kept saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I felt so overwhelmed to the point where like I was crying and I, I said, I just need some water. And he gave me a bottle of water and all I could do is lean over and like squeeze it and some water splash in my mouth. Like I, I was literally at the end of myself, but it felt like I was purging 10 years of pain in an hour is, is the best way to describe it. And uh, he encouraged me after that. Like, I think you you know, it'd be really good for you to get back inside and the interesting thing with this is, you know, like I, I'd heard all these stories about I'm doing satanic and demonic and losing my mind, all this kind of stuff. And I remember coming back in and they, they put the blanket on me and the pillow on, you know, on my head or under my head. And I remember just going, Jesus, I need you. Like in this moment, I was at literally at the end of myself and all I could do was cry out to Jesus. And there was an unquestionable presence of just instant peace that washed over me. And I felt like I was in this cocoon that just could not be touched. And 
you know, the ceremony's going and they're, you know, it's, it, the ceremony in and of itself is pretty intense. And there are people that, that purge and kind of vomit with as part of the ceremony. And so it, it's a very intense experience, but I, I remember laying there just like, Oh, I've got, I've got Jesus. Like, I'm good. I'm good. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Throw up. Oh, poor guy. You're going through it. Aren't you? Like, and I, and I was just overwhelmed with this peace and this love after this massively intense uh, purging of, of pain and emotion and tears. And, you know, I'm at a place now where I am open to a variety of spirituality more than I ever have been, but no one will ever be able to tell me that the spirit of Jesus isn't real because of, again, like that, that whole, I, I'm very led by experiences because those are what's real, no matter what I know in my mind. And so the irony within all of that is, you know, it actually anchored me more in my understanding of the power of Jesus. And, you know, I don't know, I, like just personally, because of the, um, the digging that I've done, I, I think psychedelics played a massive role in the formation of the Bible and there's evidence that's leaning that way. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, and so, you know, Jesus's role within that, I I'm not saying I have the answers or I'm not saying that he's the, the only way to access heaven slash God. I personally don't necessarily believe that, but at the same time, I equally don't believe that the spirit of Jesus is not real because of what I experienced. And, and so it actually drew me closer to God and closer to Jesus. I don't have all the answers. I have more questions than I have answers, but I feel more anchored in those truths because of what I experienced, you know, and that's, and then, you know, separate from the ayahuasca, I remember the first time doing a, a macro dose with psilocybin, it just in my home by myself, um, there was a lot that came up, but one of them was, I remember laying on my bed crying because I felt love for myself, like genuine love for myself. And I remember going, I love me. Oh God, I'm a good man. I love me. I'm a good man. I love me. And I was just wrapped up in that deep understanding more than I ever had been before. And so that's, that's where I think like some of these more intense psychedelic experiences can usher you into a deeper understanding of yourself as well as God. But it requires you letting go of control. It requires letting go of fear. You know, like it is stepping into an unknown within itself because you never know fully what you're getting into when it comes to doing those more intense experiences. And then, you know, just the microdosing on, on the back end of that and, and incorporating that almost as a, um, not a daily routine, but um, just because there's, there's different regiments as far as recommended regiments and you need to give your mind a break between you know, you can't indefinitely microdose your mind needs to actually time to solidify the rewiring that you're doing all that kind of stuff. And so periodically doing more intense things. And, and like I said, not plant medicine, but MDMA, I took a high dose of that and went through this deeply, deeply healing process with my ex-wife. She wasn't there, but I sat her down in front of me and just overcome with love for her and for me and for us able to let her go and feel like I was heard. And, and so there's just, I feel like there's these tools available to us that as the stigma begins to get removed, 
and society begins to see the benefits and science begins to show the benefits that, you know, more and more people that choose to lean into that unknown, you know, that fear. Sure. I think there's a healthy reverence for plant medicine. You should always have, but then also if you feel pulled to it, it's a common thing that, you know, people say, if, if you're ready for plant medicine, it will call you, you know, and you kind of lean into that and you can choose to let fear keep you on the sidelines, wondering and looking in, or you can step into that unknown and see what's on the other side of it. What kind of time frame are we dealing with? When did, when did that first ayahuasca experience happen for you? That was February of this year. Okay. So I, I actually did microdosing. Um, it was for three months prior to that. So I started in 2019 and, um, and that, to me, because of my fears and my control issues and all those kinds of things, I think just my own journey, you know, my own life, microdosing gave me the ability to kind of ease into it. And, you know, me being me and making myself the guinea pig, et cetera, I uh, inevitably like, okay, well, this is what this microdosing feels. It's sub-experiential for the most part, et cetera. What happens if I take just two or three of those? So it's not like a full personal journey that's why I'm really big on measuring everything that you put in your body in the realm of psychedelics, just because learning how you respond, learning, you know, what, not, not even what you can tolerate, but just for where your heart is, for where your life is understanding. Okay. You know, now that I've incorporated it in my life, if I'm with my kids, then I shouldn't do this, or I can do this if I'm camping versus if I'm picking them up for school, you know, just and you build a relationship with it, just like you would anything else. Like people have a relationship with alcohol, right? People have a relationship with food. They, you build a relationship with these plant medicine. And, you know, I, I've been very fortunate. There's a, actually a company, which I'm, again, like you said, I'm not a doctor, I'm not recommending, et cetera, but there is a company called Mushroom Doctor that uh, encapsulates a variety of different mushrooms. And some of them are psilocybin that I can incorporate into my kind of daily routine and regimen that allows me to know exactly how much I'm taking and, and really kind of maintain a healthy relationship with that. Right. And unfortunately, you know, given the nature of the legal situation and the cultural situation, that was something you kind of had to do on your own. You know, you couldn't necessarily go to your, yeah. go to the VA and say, I'm going to start tapering off of this med and I'm going to increase this. Yeah. Uh, that would not have been, you know, condoned. And so I'm guessing having the structure of friends and coaches that you relied on to walk you yeah. through that was probably essential or you never would have felt yeah. the confidence to, to go there. I mean, uh, yeah. Generally, yeah. if someone doesn't have like a, a prescribed plan to follow, they wouldn't be able to decide on their own that they're going to spend three months tapering off and then have this journey. You almost yeah. need the experience of another person or maybe a group of people who, who have the experience of others that you can possibly base, you know, some um, expectations of what you might experience as you do such yep. things. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's why my path, that's why I pivoted my coaching to psychedelic integration, right. Is because like you said, ha just having someone there with you in your journey and your process, everybody has a different journey. Everybody has a different process, but just having someone who 
understands and 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 there's a lot of things especially when it comes to psychedelics that you just can't put words to right you experience it and it's it's kind of like once a marine always a marine and you meet a fellow marine and there's a common ground because maybe you went to war or you didn't go to war or whatever it was but you went through you know the marine corps version of training slash hell and there's a common ground that's just uh, unspoken, you know, with that. And it creates a, a sense of bond and, and trust within that. And I think you get that same thing when it comes to psychedelics in the sense of if you have somebody who has gone down that road or had those experiences, they're not going to be able to say like, okay, if you take this much, these are going to be the three things that you're going to see or whatever. But when you're going into it, you can very practically set yourself up for success, very you know, foundationally within your experience. And then to have someone after the fact to, to talk about it, or if you're microdosing to like figure out how to integrate it or dial it in all those kinds of things. And ultimately, you know, a lot of this, it brings up emotional things. It brings up spiritual things. It brings up trauma that you haven't confronted or looked at. And that's really where my passion is combining my life coaching experience with my psychedelic experience and how it's helped me and to just kind of link arms with those people. And, you know, I, yes, I had my friends, but I also, my approach to life and kind of my experiences, I, I'm okay with taking certain risks and making myself a guinea pig and going, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, and learning from that. And I, I know that that's just part of my life as well as part of my calling is to, to kind of be that tip of the spear for people to then come alongside them so that they don't have to do it alone so that they can process after the fact and go, you know, especially some of my clients that have a Christian background, you know, they're confronting a lot of these religious ideals that say that what they're experiencing is bad, but they feel this conflict because what they're feeling and their experience is actually positive and good, but they're ingrained and told that it, you know, shouldn't be good. And so it's not throwing out Christianity and saying that it's bad by any means, but it's just giving them permission to be okay with their own journey and to explore what comes up. And a lot of times to explore, you know, those suppressed emotional things that ultimately come flooding to the surface. And then you have a choice, right? You have a choice to say, okay, am I going to lean into these things and confront them and and work through them to change my internal paradigms, or am I, you know, it's, it's, it's not much different than people that are conference junkies that hop from one conference to another and have these great revelatory experiences, but then don't do much outside of that to actually change their life. And so then they, you know, they need that fix. They need that conference. They need that experience, that worship set, whatever it may be, you can easily fall into that same thing within psychedelics where they're not addictive by nature and in, in what they are physically, physio physiologically, but um, you can kind of get addicted to the revelation or the experience or the insight. Yeah. And it's just, and it's just need... getting high, which is what yeah. those people are doing when they go to the conference. It doesn't yeah. have to be just a high. Yes. But some people are using it that way. Yeah. You know, they get, they get revved up, they get retuned, ready to face the day. And then when they get home, all that falls to the wayside and they don't, yeah. they don't do the, the work of integrating. Yeah. Well, it seemed like I was going to transition to your work now, but it seemed like we naturally went that way. So where do you find yourself now on 
the other side of that and what what does the future look like and before you answer that i do have one question and again this doesn't apply to everyone but it's just you specifically have you have you needed to access the pharmaceuticals again or is that something that you are no longer um, using yeah no i it it feels foreign to me to think that i would be back on them i've been completely off ever since and like I said, I think that they have their place for some people and work well. For me, I just felt numb, you know, like I, I didn't kill myself. That's good. But using the metaphor of the road of life, I was just kind of sitting. I, I wasn't in the muddy ditch on the side of the road, but I was just sitting on the side of the road. And plant medicine has enabled me to like stand up and look down and go, oh, there's a road down there and start taking practical steps to move down that. And, and so, yeah, I have not been back on antidepressants or anxiety or like any, any VA medications since I came off of them. And the reason why it feels foreign to me is, is now just the self-awareness that's come from my journey with plant medicine. You know, I'm more in tune now. Like I, I don't drink alcohol, not, I've got zero qualms with anybody that does, but it just doesn't have that polar appeal. Cause it kind of gives me that numbed feeling. And I don't want that. I want to be present. And then, you know, being involved in yoga and community and all these other things, like I have these tools, or maybe I need to do another macro dose, you know, personal journey to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And so I I just feel like I have these different tools accessible to me that are both effective, not just from understanding, but from my experience, as well as, you know, just they're my go-tos now instead of a pharmaceutical medication, right? Again, that's not uh, necessarily a you know advice for everyone, but uh, yeah, absolutely. But I definitely wanted to hear you know uh, your personal experience in that regard. Well, having been in this arena for almost a year now, what are your main takeaways, and what kind of information or uh, advice would you give to listeners on how they can decide what to think about the use of psychedelics and how can they determine if that's something that might be right for themselves or a loved one in their life yeah, who's yeah. struggling? Um, I mean, without sounding self-promoting, I think it starts with ha- finding someone to go on that journey with you. And, you know, whether it's me or anybody, like there's a handful of coaches out there that are now willing to work with you in that process. And, but I think it starts with a conversation. You know, that's why I always do my, my first call with somebody is, is just a free short call to touch base with them just to understand where they're at and whether or not it's a journey that they're wanting to go down to or go on, or if it makes sense for them or whatever it may be. You know, one thing I did do, which I, I recommend to everybody is just to do the research, right. To, to, to begin to dig into not just the hype that you see on Instagram or whatever it may be, but to really begin to dig into some of the studies that are now coming out and the, the science that's beginning to show it. And, and I think for me, that helps, that helps you step into more of the unknown when you can see that there's not just, you know, a blogger writing about it, or, you know, I can say all day that it's changed my life and that I'm off antidepressants and that it's deepened my connection with myself, God, and my kids. Like I could say all of that, but that still doesn't trump the science that's now coming out to actually show how, you know, psilocybin, when you take it, 
it restricts the blood flow to what's called your default mode network in your brain. And at the same time, it's firing new neurons. So it's literally helping you, you know, that default mode network is normally established when you're a child and then your ego is built around it. And so you know, the whole death to ego, there's now science that literally shows how that's happening and how you're building new neural pathways in your mind. And, and so, you know, whether that's having a conversation or finding a coach to, to come alongside you, or you do, you're doing your own research, going into it with your eyes as open as you can be, understanding that you're stepping into something that is unknown, that is experiential, that does require you to let go of control, that requires you to confront your fears. You know, I think going back to earlier in our conversation, if, if you're feeling that reservation or hesitation, but you're also feeling this pull, this life, this curiosity, excitement, whatever it may be, that you lean into that, you know, not just in plant medicine, but in life. And, but in the realm of plant medicine specifically, I can't under stress how important it is to, to not go at it alone. You know, that's when, that's when you not even, you know, I don't even think personally that quote unquote, bad trips are bad because when you learn how to look at them the right way, it may be bad, but it's a lot of times it's exposing something that's in you, you know? And, and so then it gives you, it ushers you into an invitation to begin to work through that and um, to navigate those waters. And so, but if you don't have somebody that's there with you, you can take that and go, well, that sucked. Uh, screw plant medicine. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, whatever it may be. And then, you know, there's very practical things that you can do leading into it that help mitigate what may be some of those bad experiences. You know, like I, there was one time where I did a macro dose and forgot to clean my house, just a super practical thing. Right. And like half of my trip, I'm almost panicking, feeling like I need to clean my house because my house isn't in order. And some may say that was a bad trip, but it just like everywhere I looked, I'm like, I don't have my shit together. I don't even, I didn't even make my bed this morning. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Ah, 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 you know, and kind of put myself into a place of panic, not knowing how to like ease back out of that and go back into a place of, you know, deep healing within what it was showing. So there's but really practical you'll never, things. You'll never do that again. You'll keep your house yeah, clean so from now on. Totally, totally. <laughs> but that's why like meeting with a coach that something super practical, like, hey, make sure your house is clean. You can do really practical things that helps at least set you up for more positive experiences, you know? Right. And so I think it's weighing, it's, it's weighing the understanding that you're stepping into the unknown. And even if you, I mean, like I was somebody, I took acid as a teenager and, you know, experimented with, but I, I was, I was the kid that just wanted to get high and whatever it was. So when you're an adult and you're approaching it as a, a journey and healing and, you know, approaching it with reverence, it's understanding that even if you've had experiences, they're so fundamentally different with your intention set. And as an adult, than just a teenager wanting to get high. And how do you approach that in the best way and in the way that sets you up for success? And then how do you integrate it? You know, it, it's balancing, stepping into that unknown as well as either with a coach or your own research to go into it with the best of a understanding as to what you're stepping into. Again, understanding that it is a massive unknown. Well, I feel like what I'm doing and what you're doing and many others that have seemed to surfaced upon the scene over the last year or two, I think that we're all approaching this topic with, with a certain amount of wisdom and understanding. 
I, yeah. I don't, I think that there's a bit of a, of a formative evolution in the topic. I don't think people are necessarily interested in the aspect of getting high. Yeah. I think people are looking into this subject matter with the clear intention of how this can improve the human condition physically, spiritually, and relationally. I'm optimistic that that will have positive impact yeah. on, on, on society. So. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think an important point to also make is, you know, there's so much talk around it, around the healing, understandably because of what it's doing. But I personally don't see a problem. Like I, I'll go out with friends and I may take like double of my microdose, right? And I'm just enjoying the evening. It's not a deep, deep healing experience or confronting these inner world. Like it's none of that. It's just I feel more connected to nature and to people and I, I'm not just getting high necessarily, but I am, you know, I'm having a glass of wine or two or, you know, whatever it may be that is just making me enjoy my relationships or, you know, with my girlfriend, there are times that we've taken small amount of MDMA together and it just kind of opens our hearts and we have a really deep connection there and it's, we just enjoy one another. And so I, I think it's important to, to praise the, the path of inner healing because it's so integral in what is coming of, you know, all of this understanding, but also to not only put it into that column or category and to, to be okay with letting it just improve your life, whatever that looks like for you, whether that's confronting your demons, or if that's just enjoying deeper connection with nature and with people and, and not just quote unquote, getting high necessarily, you're still going into it with intention, but to enjoy yourself, like it's okay to just enjoy yourself as well within all of this. Absolutely. I appreciate you pointing that out. It's, it's going to take us a while to socially integrate psychedelics into, into culture the same way we had to, as Americans learn to integrate alcohol back into society post prohibition. Yep. And we're, you know, we're, we're maybe, I don't know, 10 years into reintegrating cannabis use into common society. And yeah. that, I think that psychedelics will follow a similar trajectory. You're always yeah, going to have people who look at any substance as an opportunity to abuse or achieve some short-term um, goal. You know, yeah. so this morning I poured two strong cups of psychoactive drugs to get me going in the morning. You know, yeah, it was yep. called uh, coffee, French press, yeah, uh, Ethiopian uh, light roast, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So um, to pretend that that is not just a socially acceptable stimulant that most of us use and don't think twice about it. Yeah. It may be that, um, you know, Five or 10 years from now, it's not unusual for you and your loved one to have a gram or two of psilocybin and, yep. um, you know, enjoy a, a hike. Uh, yeah, um, and, absolutely. And that, that sounds radical to the modern American mind, but maybe, maybe it's just something that can have a positive impact on the way we live our lives. Yeah, uh, I, I agree don't, 100%. There, and there's no way to draw a black or white line on whether, yeah. you know, you're, you're doing it right or wrong. 
that all comes down to wisdom and how we integrate those things into our, our spiritual walk. Yep. I it's going to be, it's going to be complicated and confusing and none of us are ever going to feel 100% um, satisfied with our neighbor's uh, choices, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we're going to have to make those decisions as individuals and families and decide how we come to understand these things. Yeah. Well, Josh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Really, it's only uh, stimulated a thousand rabbit trails. I'd love to run down with you, but just an excuse for me to come back at some point. Oh, I hope so. And uh, maybe an opportunity just for us to have some conversations on the side. I'd love to pick your, pick your brain, but in closing, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, Obviously I'd love for them, especially the men in the audience to uh, check out your podcast. I've really yeah. enjoyed it. I would, I've, I've probably listened to all of them, but over the past week, I knew you were coming on. So I tried to go back and refresh myself with some of the, the content. I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's very um, helpful in this day and time to mm. have a medium that uh, we can discuss the struggles that men face. Yeah. Uh, without that that negativity of what quote unquote masculinity used to mean Mm -hmm. so it's and i mean this in a in a positive way your your podcast doesn't draw the final line on what masculinity means no it's more delving into the experience of masculinity as it transforms and as it as we embody it today in our own lives Mm -hmm. in our own families so it's, it's a very dynamic approach to the topic. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, a, it's not a one size fits all and it's not a, here's the final word. It's more of a uh, delving into the idea. Yeah. A living yeah, idea. I mean, that, that's why I, I chose the name multifaceted masculinity, right? Because it is just that it's multifaceted. And my, my heart is, you know, it's masculinity in my opinion, has come under assault in the last 20 years. And I am a hundred percent behind not championing toxic masculinity, but then it begs the question, what is healthy masculinity? And I, what I want for my podcast and for my listeners is more than anything to just be thought provoking and to begin to, you know, grab a topic and delve into it in a way that causes us to look at said topic with maybe different eyes or different questions or a different approach. And just to begin to define what that is, what is healthy masculinity for you, for yourself within your life? You know, how can you walk that out? And so, you know, we cover a variety of topics, whether it's relationship or spirituality or, uh, you know, sexuality, insecurities, you know, all that kind of stuff that just makes up who we are. We're, we're complex men, you know, we're, we're not the, simple, straightforward men, you know? And so I, I love having those conversations and extending them to, to my listeners for sure. Yeah. And if people are interested in learning more about psychedelics and plant medicine, you spent a little bit of time discussing that on your podcast recently as well. So yep. yeah, I would definitely direct people there. Well, is there anything else that you would uh, like to leave our listeners with as we close? No, if, if I could leave one last thing, it would just be to reiterate regardless of where you may find yourself in life to pause and to look at 
where is there that fear mixed with that life? And to, you know, I think the people that make change happen are the, the individuals, men or women, that choose to lean into that discomfort slash excitement and, and really find a life that most of us long for, but are often afraid to take the steps required out of where we currently are and to who we want to be. And so um, just to champion that and, you know, people say it all the time, if I can do it, you could do it too. Like I, I, I firmly believe that I, I'm nothing special in the sense of uh, who I am as a person. Sure. I've made some, taken some risks and made some decisions, but that's really the only difference between, you know, me and the guy next to me that maybe is, finds himself unhappy with where he's at. And so I think consistent action in the direction of life and love while confronting fear has more in store for anyone who's willing to lean into that than they may ever realize. Where fear meets excitement. I call that a uh, passion. And I think you're helping people find it, Josh. I, I call that finding, uh, finding adult diaper moments. <laughs> Maybe that too. <laughs> where you're so scared, you want to shit yourself, but you do it anyways. <laughs> Well, thanks for being here. And uh, I'm sure that you and I'll will speak again soon. All right. Sounds Have a great good. day, Josh. We appreciate right, you, you too, joining us today. Yeah. Thanks. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Josh today. And if you would like to connect with him, you can find him on his website, joshseerbaugh.com. That's J-O-S-H-C-E-A-R-B-A-U-G-H. Com. Also, I encourage you to seek out his multifaceted masculinity podcast. In some recent episodes, Josh delved much deeper into his transformative ayahuasca experience that he shared with us today. And recently, he and former guest of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, Seth Connor, do a deep dive into the topic of codependency in relationships. I highly recommend it. Again, my deepest thanks to Josh for joining us today and to those of you who have taken an interest in our conversation. Please join me in the next episode when I will discuss the topic of faith and psychedelics with another fellow Christian. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm -hmm.